last night of the 999th year, the Argent City was abuzz with activity. The celebration of the next day heralded the end of the first millennia, and all of humanity was excited to walk into the joyous light of the next. On this night, under the brilliant glow of the three moon sisters, jesters, fireweavers, quicksmiths, and artists of every background worked their magics, filling the air with a blanket of brilliant delights to appeal to every sense. The City of Silver, home of all humanity, for in those days we were a small community. It never truly dimmed at night, nor did any fall completely asleep. But tonight, of all nights, on the eve of a new era, every citizen had taken to the streets to celebrate. Young and old laughed and danced and paraded. In those days, the air itself glimmered with a pearly light, husky, yet easing the heart's burdens. Such was the provision of the gods that even the wind bore more wits, empathy, and peace in each breath than you or I shall taste in a hundred lifetimes. Oh yes, things were very different back then. In those early morning hours, only the gleaming moon sisters hung above in the starless inky firmament, for in a world of immortality, what hero had yet passed into the sky to become the stars? And all talk was of the gifts the regions had promised the children the next morning. With reluctance, the moon sisters eventually found their rest and the sky lightened, and they promised with farewell waves to return in the evening and make merry once again. And so all who called themselves children of heaven, fae and human alike, joined in the heart of the city to receive and to give gifts. The gifts that were given by the regents are lost to the uncivilized rhythms of time's current, stirred like river muck to list in the deeps, murky to see, and then to see nothing at all. The barge passes, the current takes us forward, and the silt has long since settled. In strange lands, sinless lands, they stay, and the river carries us forever further and further away. And yet... We can be sure of one gift seared in the mind of eternity forevermore. When all had been bestowed and the great light of Yadiel began his rosy descent into the west, gilding the city of silver with his golden rays, only then did the nameless one bestow us with their ruin. They spoke words of power in the tongue of no tongues, in dead words older than creation, and with them cracked the heart of the world into pieces. The children of the city of silver cried out as the skies grew brighter than the sun, pain like none that had ever been felt, and like none that will ever be felt again, stole their bodies. The world was rent, pocked with black burning ash that seared the vaults of the sky. Light, blinding, cursed light, and then darkness. Darkness to blot out the skies for countless days. The golden hour was ended. The city of the children was no more. Greetings from Halime, oh, a lore-building podcast where you, me, and my friend Carter explore eons of history, heroes and villains, and um, forces that whirl about it all. Uh, I'm Frank, one half of the Halime podcast. 
the other half, my friend Carter, you'll hear in a moment when we get started, but for now, you're stuck with me. Um, what you just heard is an excerpt from a lecture where a scholar is explaining to their students about the time before Paradise Lost, uh, events around what is now known as the Ash Curse. Stories say that things used to be right between the gods and the sentient races, but things go very wrong indeed, uh, thanks to a dark gift. And in a little bit, you'll hear how. So whether you're interested in stories or looking for inspiration for your own world building, or perhaps you want to participate in some way, uh, why don't you settle in and whether you're on your commute or working late, and we'll tell you how it all went down. Grammatical advices aside, the Ash Curse, it's a very provocative name, right? When you think of curse, you think of some sort of dark magic, but here we're not really talking about that. We're talking about a lack thereof. It's true, actually. That's a pretty interesting way to put it. The Ash Curse is not a result of dark magics, but rather it's a result of the loss of magic. Uh, it was a cataclysmic event. Yeah, and I mean, it's not only is the Ash Curse the event that caused it, but it's the the period, the name for the period of the absence of magic from the world, right? Um. Yes, it specifically refers to the events that occurred directly after um, the the sort of the fallout of about a hundred years or so of turmoil that the entire planet went through, sort of a hundred years of apocalypses. Um, But the time after that, after kind of everything settles, has it goes by a different name. And I mean, the you know the most or the least formal version of that is. No, most formal version of that is Avum Secundus. Um, but uh, yeah, so it, does, it does refer to an era. It, does, it refers to an event, and it refers to a period of about 100 years or so. But Avum Secundus is also this period without magic, right? Right. Um, so it's sort of suffering in the lapses afterwards. Um, but Avum Secundus uh, goes by a couple of different names. Um, it's known as the Age of Deserts, the Time Between Thought, the age of the dark sun. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's a time that's different from um, what is known as the Ash Curse. Okay, so it's a period of, you said, several hundred years? About a hundred. About a hundred, okay. About a century, yeah. And it it begins with the the cutting off of magic, right? The flow of magic. Yeah, um... So yes, it's kind of there's kind of two major parts to the Ash Curse. Um, I don't know. Do we need any background here to kind of talk about this uh, effectively, or do you think we can just dive in? What do you think makes more sense? Um, well, I think we can talk about how, like, what is what so in in answering the question of what is the Ash Curse. I think the best way to go about that is to talk about. Um, what exactly happened to begin it and the things that are required to understand what happened. So if it is, you know, in some way the cutting off of the Nine Flow, understanding what the Nine Flow is would be fairly important. Sure. Definitely. I think that makes sense, especially from kind of this being our first episode. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Halloumé. Um, 
we're uh, we're definitely in a place where we're going to want to touch on that stuff, but without getting into too much detail. Don't want to you know overwhelm anyone with um, with just content. Um, but yeah, okay. So if we're going to answer it kind of the most basic terms, and then uh, maybe from there we dive into slightly more complicated. Um, things. The Ash Curse was an event that in- affected the entirety of the world. Um, and it's some of the earliest recorded histories of sentient races. So way back, um, eons and eons and eons ago, kind of in the dawn of civilization, the dawn of um, mankind um, specifically, um, there was a period known as the Golden Hour or Humanity's First Step. Um, it's known as that because at the time, um, humanity was one of the only sentient races. Um, a lot has happened since then, but, um, back then it was just them. And the Ash Curse, um, was essentially revenge. It was an act of revenge against all of the sentient races and against the gods and against, um, basically creation itself. It was... Um, a jealous being, which is now only known as the Nameless One, who, in a confused mix of both anger and uh, desperation and insecurity, punished the creation because of its creator. And what exactly was this punishment? So there is, in the center of the world, um, at the core of its heart, sort of how we have an iron core at the center of our planet, they have something called the Erebor Crystal. It was almost as large as a moon, and it was one entire whole and um, complete crystal without any facets. It was impossibly smooth, you know, impossibly round. It was perfect, made only in the way that a deity could create it. The creator god, On, who is sort of um, beyond the pantheons, uh, is sort of a distant fi- uh, figure who, you know, made all. They created the planet with this Erebor crystal so that it could channel magic, so that it could basically act as a, as a, as a resonance or a, um, uh, what would you call that, a catalysm? A cat- a catalyst? Like a- catalyst. Yeah. Uh, the way I kind of think about it, and you know, tell me if this is a good way to think about it, is it's like the iron core we have that generates the electric, the um, magnetic field, mm-hmm. except it kind of, I, I wouldn't say it generates the, the arcanosphere, but it has a pretty important role, right? Yeah, so the, uh, so the arcanosphere basically exists. There's definitely a correlation there. So in the same way that we have a magnetosphere as a result of our iron core rotating, creating magnetic fields, which protect us from the sun's more deadly ultraviolet radiation or other, uh, other like harmful rays, there is a, um, there is a, it, it acts as a conduit. That's the word I was looking for. It acts as a conduit for the nine flow, which is... Uh, basically magic for for all intents and purposes for now just think of the nine flow as magic we can get into what exactly that is and breaking that down later but it's not super important for understanding the ash curse basically what happens is um the nameless one knows this um the they were basically a all 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 that is really known about them is that they had power among the regions um the regions are known as such because they're the ones who are basically the purveyors of the heavenly realms. So they're the ones responsible for 
um, providing the material plane with magic, acting as um, guides of magical power. And there's and there's nine regions for the nine flow. That's right. Nine so, regions, nine flow. So the nameless one was like a tenth region. Sort of, yeah. So the uh, regions are not the only deities. Um, there are other gods, um, other beings of power. They're just simply at the top of the top. They're the sort of creme de, creme de la creme. It's not known anymore um, whether the Nameless One was among them, whether uh, they were one of them, or whether they played some other part sort of adjacent to them. But it is generally accepted that they had a position of significant power, um, that they had influence, that they could enter the courts of the regions and um, have uh, lend them an ear, um, that they had some level of authority. They were a flawed figure, to say the least. Um, they dealt with a lot of insecurity. Um, they um, were furious that um, the creator god own would create abominations of both flesh and spirit um the idea of creating a creature that it almost it was seen as sort of like an amphibian to to them at the time it was still really new this idea of combining you know the physical and the um spiritual and so for a, uh, if you can imagine be you know putting yourself in the 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 position of a person who is straight up divine and is ex- exists as only spirit and spirit embodied the idea of a creature that somehow also possesses a like a flesh a corporealness um that has the potential to die or experience pain um was unacceptable it was something that um they brooded about they became extremely um they basically be, uh, cut themselves off completely from the other regions in their fury um the other regions to the most part um, were actually delighted by this um they saw it as sort of an extension of own's uh, creation that own ex- extended the the reach I, I guess would be a good way of putting that extended the reach of ethereum yeah he bridged the gap between the physical and the spiritual yeah, sort of like this idea of... Because for a time, there was only the realms of the regents, which are also known as the Ethereum. Um, there was only that and the deity. Um, there were the angels, and that was pretty much it. And then eventually, um, Own creates the Primordium, which is the elemental chaos. It is it is sort of the place that is the origin just as much as as the ethereum is the origin of the soul the spirit and the nine flow magic so is the primordium the 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 sort of the source for all physical things you can kind of think of it as like plato's forms the idea of this being there being like a higher dimensional place that all things uh are reflecting of so that happens the nameless one does not like this he sees the primordium or they see the primordium they're upset by that they think, wait, wait, I thought we had a fine thing going here. Why do we need, why do we need other realms? The, uh, the Ethereum is fine. Anything else would be less than perfect, less so, than divine. So the Nameless One was even upset with physical, physicalness in any sense. The spirit was yep. what mattered. 
it created insecurity in them because they wondered if own was abandoning them or moving on like like this idea of just kind of um, i mean this is maybe not the best metaphor but kind of like a man who marries a woman and then has kids by them and then turns out to be a deadbeat dad and just kind of disappears on them and then moves on to another family the nameless one is kind of like a you can they saw themselves as a kid that was being abandoned or that the attention of the creator was elsewhere Okay. So kind of put it in a really familial perspective, that's a loose equivalent of what it would be, except we're talking, of course, you know, divine figures with very, very strong emotions. Uh, so that happens. Then the other regents think this is actually just really cool. They're, most of them are down with this for the most part. Um, some of them are, you know, not necessarily like in love with the idea, but they're, they're comfortable with it. Then Own takes another step. After another timeless time, another ageless age, for time didn't really exist in a proper sense yet, Own weaves the, the primordium and the ethereum together, and by like sort of pulling and treating both of those as seed, seed lands, seed realms, creates the materium, what we think of as sort of the prime material plane. And that's like where, where Siddhar, where where the cosmos come from, where all the stars, Yadiel, the, the systems and all the stars in the sky. That's where all that stuff comes from. Okay. So th- this all happens. And this is like the final straw for, for the nameless one. They are broken, they are furious, and they begin to devise a rev- like a vengeance. Convinced that Own has completely ignored them, convinced that they no longer have access to um, sort of the inner sanctum, and their own heart it begins to corrupt them. So they begin to plot their revenge, and this takes the form of they basically make a decree. This is at least the story that is told that they will give them one thousand years. They will give humanity for humanity was the first creation of Own. They will give humanity 1,000 years to experience joy and delight and, and the experiences uh, that all of the materium can give them. Um, kingdoms rise, you know, people discover great technologies. Uh, they are led in the ways of the brightest minds and the greatest powers because they have unmitigated access to the Nine Flow. It's the, never again in the history of the world will will there ever be a time in which so great of knowledge is accessed and so powerful of magics magics that can redefine and reshape entire continents wielded by one person so like like a single blade of grass has more magic in it in this era than the entirety of a continent's worth of beings in later eras well, I don't know if I'd go that far, but there's definitely, yeah, there's definitely an extreme disparity between, it, it, to, to call what is now considered magic magic would be an insult to the peoples of that time. They would, they would, it's a paltry sum in comparison. Every person is born not only with the ability to cast spells, but to reshape magic itself as it, as it enters the world. And you know what they say about absolute power? Corrupts absolutely. No, uh, they say that absolute power is checked by absolute power. Nobody says that, really, but I heard that one time. Yeah, that... uh, What? Basically this. If everybody has access to this much powerful magic, people are their own guides. People are their own... You know, they check themselves. Everyone's got nukes? Yeah, basically, if everybody... Every person has their finger on a button, then you can just nuke the nuke. (laughs) If people have the power to, you know, shift entire continents, other people have the power to block that. 
Just counterspell. Yeah, basically counterspell. All of that's kind of a rabbit trail, though. In, when, when it comes to... So, so to talk about the amount of energy that all of this is going into the Erebor crystal, which is then being filtered out through the, the, the thousands of miles of layers of rock and crystalline structure that lace the inside of the planet. When that reaches the edge, then that creates the arcanosphere, you know, protecting the planet from errant power or, or, or things beyond it. So then the Nameless One figures this out. They figure out, well, the Erebor crystal, if I can shatter that somehow, then I can destroy magic. I can destroy the planet, this beloved world child of not only own, but also the regents who sort of treat it as a younger sibling that they dote on. Quick, quick tangent. Yeah, go ahead. So here we're talking about Sadar, right? Right. Sadar, the planet. Yes, but there are many planets. Yes, there are. And it's possible that there are many beings on different planets as well, right? I suppose so. That's, uh... Yes, uh, I I will say yes to that. I simply want to say that, and leave open the option, that the Nameless One could have possibly done different and maybe even worse things to other places. Wow. Okay, so... Here, here we're kind of touching into something that we at the Halume podcast, um, Carter and I, have talked about as something we want to be open about is, I haven't thought about that at all, but I really like the idea of that in terms of world building. And I think we should definitely put a pin in that and come back to that sometime because there are some really intriguing possibilities. I have mostly kept away from thinking about other planets for now because that's just one is enough. It's like it's it, yeah, it's all it's its own whole thing when, you know, one continent of one planet is enough to have spent the last year and a half trying to develop, but I am really intrigued by that idea and we're going to have to come up, uh, come back to that sometime. Yeah, and it's possible he might have done something even to the what was the um, spiritual realm called? The Ethereum? Maybe he who knows, did something to that. Well, we actually will get into a little bit of that here. So he gets jealous, right? And he sees uh, that that if he shatters the Erebor crystal, he can uh, permanently change the planet. That's his, that's his hope, anyways. That's their hope. So they go about trying to do this. For a thousand years, they plot and plan and begin to corrupt the forces that they can among the beings as they are in the Ethereum, um, which includes the regents, but also minor deities, some semi, uh, sem- like demigods. But the largest access that they have to these forces, because most of those are too benevolent to, to turn, is there are many, many um, groups of angels known as the Houses of Legion. So basically, the entirety of the heavens are sort of segregated into smaller and smaller divisions of the Houses of Legion. But they essentially, the division exists as a way of describing what they're job is it's it's basically just saying what's your occupation are you working under one of the regions of the nine flow are you working as a emissary between the two are you working more with matters down on the planet proper to you know either guide or aid or eventually in the in in the future make war because at this time of course it's a time of it's a time of peace when people are that absorbed in the nine flow because of the nature of what it 
in tones. Um, it's almost impossible to become anything but benevolent and empathetic, which we will once again talk about later. Getting, I got a little off track there, but basically, yeah. So <laughs> the nameless one starts to corrupt the, the forces as they are uh, extant in the Ethereum. After a thousand years, on the first day of the first month of the first year of year 1000, they execute their plan. And by using different points across the entirety of the Ethereum, they draw the power of the Nine Flow to an extent at which the, there's no way that the planet can channel that much energy or, or contain that much. It is as if the entirety of the universe's power is channeled into one single planet's core. And it takes a while. It takes several days before the planet no longer can contain it because the purpose of it is to be able to contain immense power. But eventually, the first crack starts to appear, a massive cavernous uh, rift in between two, uh, two parts of the Erebor crystal. And as soon as that happens, within milliseconds, within the smallest slices of time that are measurable, the entire thing shatters like a, plane of, a pane of glass that is shot through with a bullet. Maybe not a bullet, you know, throw something at it, and immediately you see those rivulets being created because it's such a perfect shape, and it can't handle I'm gonna, that. I'm going to pause you here because you said something really interesting before the cracking of the crystal. And what was that? So the Nameless One is pouring all of this magic into it to attempt to crack it, right? To attempt to overload it. Yes. What are those days like to be on this world that has suddenly been completely oversaturated with such incredible magical power? Most people don't survive. So the first days of the Ash Curse, sort of the first hours even, if you want to call it that, we watch as as millions of, of beings die all at once. It's excruciatingly painful. People find out that they can't, in the same way that we would lift our hand and simply just like lift it to our face to scratch our face, you know, if we itch. Those, even those levels of trying to access magic, people are destroying entire cities, laying waste to whole forests or killing themselves in the process. Pretty quickly, people are discovering something is seriously wrong. And there's no, you know, overarching government. Everyone's kind of on their own because every person is, you know, almost godlike in their power. And as a result, people just learn quickly that if, if you do that kind of stuff, you will die. So people refuse to access magic at all, but there is a delirium that comes over them as a result of the, the being so hypersaturated with the, the aspects of the nine flow. Um, the abstracts completely take them over. People, some people are just in a lurid haze for days. Um, other people experience almost insane empathy or joy or creativity on a level that borders insanity, um, where it, it, it is like a drug that completely shuts down all other parts of their faculties. They weren't made to be able to, you know, to, to contain that kind of power. Yeah. Even when their bodies are, you know, more formed than those who came after them, more, uh, more refined, more uh, powerfully built. Yeah, that's a that's a great question though. I definitely wouldn't mind writing a short story on kind of those days and what that would what, what that would feel like. 
All right, so we were at the, the, the shattering of the airboat crystal. Right. Okay. All right, so channels the power into the airboat crystal. The thing shatters. And also, quick question again. Yeah, go ahead. How exactly is he directing this kind of power? Well, that's so okay. So that's a great question. That's why the nameless one knew that they couldn't do it alone. Um, they needed to corrupt the angels, the hosts of the houses of Legion. Yeah. Um, so, but they also knew that they couldn't necessarily gain access to channeling this kind of power uh, without significant access to the the sort of the landscape of the Ethereum itself. Um, Surely the regions would be pretty quickly aware of this. Right. And so the thing that they needed to do was they needed to learn how to make this appear as something righteous or good. And so what is believed, what is what is commonly understood, is that they tricked the Legion, the Houses of Legion, the Regents, all of the heavens into believing that whatever they were doing was going to be this great surprise or this big present or this great gift to the Ethereum. Especially at the time, this idea of being able to channel more magic or provide more of this life force to the planet would be seen as something benevolent. And it it is understood that potentially what it was is that some of these regents or some of these powers that be believed, oh, this is kind of them returning to the fold. This is them thinking uh, in a repentant or hu- humbled way. Uh, this is them bringing bringing it all back so that uh, you know, you know, get it, kind of getting with the program. Yeah, they couldn't. The regents, I guess, couldn't really conceive of such malice, given given there hadn't really been such a thing. It was a strange seed, and nobody really even knows how a creature of pure perfection could be tainted in such a way. But that's exactly right. They just they they couldn't really even conceive of evil in this way. They didn't really understand what the nameless one was before then. But they didn't they they understood that they were at least not necessarily evil. There wasn't really even a word for that at the time. Just strange, different. So they shatter the Erebor crystal, and to the horror of the Ethereum, the last event that they do is is with the shattering that immense amount of energy coming from the from the magic forces they turn it back on the nine flow and use it like a blade to sever the ties between the ethereum and the materium cutting off all of the nine flow almost like you can think of like pipes that are that are flowing into somewhere and slicing through them all and now they're just uncontrolled flowing into nowhere pooling and filling up but not no longer reaching their destination so not just from this planet but from all of that's right so it's sort of a two-pronged situation they one shatter the Erebor crystal and two made it so that magic no longer could be focused or connected from the Ethereum to the Materium. Yes, this does have very wide-reaching consequences. It does, and we find out what those are pretty quickly afterwards. In the coming decades, well, maybe, maybe we'll start with a smaller timescale and kind of work our way out from that. But the first things that happen are the planet itself suffers extremely, uh, as you would imagine. That magic has to go somewhere. That energy has to go somewhere. And it does. 
you know, remember how I told you that the um, sort of the mantle and the core, uh, the different layers from uh, of of sort of the the depth of Sadar are laced with crystalline structure. Yeah, um, that sort of help the magic get out to the surface. Yeah, it's like a dispersal net. Right, exactly. All of those different little locations are the first places. Almost, you can think of it kind of the way lightning looks for the path of least resistance. All of that energy goes to each of those crystals, and if the power couldn't be contained by the Erebor. What do you think happens to these crystals that are of, of magnitudes, of entire models of scale smaller? I mean, they're exploded 100%. Oh, yeah. It's like, it's like thousands of atomic bombs going off in each one. Um, and it scars the interior of the planet. Uh, magma comes pouring into crevices and surfaces. It completely destroys it. It changes the shape of uh, a lot of the rock. Much of the rock just gets vaporized, and what doesn't becomes these hardened masses on the inside where they solidify into caverns that are miles, if not um, hundreds of miles wide or deep or tall. And so you get this bizarre patchwork pattern that extends all around the planet for thousands of miles beneath of just these pockets of space. There's definitely a little um, hand wavium that's happening there in terms of how those don't collapse immediately. I just say that somehow the structure that's around them is tough enough that it can resist that. But um, definitely like kind of more of a fantastical thing (laughs) to justify how that's even possible. I mean, when you have this amount of magic... Who knows what you know? What's happening here? Maybe the stone that is not vaporized is some, somehow magically, you know, imbued. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, I think I might just go with that. As I will say that that's canon. That's what it is. Is that the walls themselves are? Ma- oh, you know what? That actually makes a lot of sense. There is, without getting too much into it, there are definitely extreme differences between below surface subterranean stuff and the way magic behaves down there, and the ways that magic behaves above ground. We can get into that some other time. Maybe we'll chalk that up to an episode on the Underdark. But yes, it is called the Underdark. I don't have a fancy name for that. Um, it is essentially, you know, pulling that from, from the D&D reserves there. Checks out. So, these spaces explode. When they reach the surface, more or less of the same basically happens. For decades, every volcano, every plate in between the continents explodes and ruptures upwards. Massive mountain ranges are created in hours where none existed before. And this is where we get to why it's called the Ash Curse, because all of those volcanoes, all of that that, that, that energy below the surface has to go somewhere. And that vaporized rock and all of that energy explodes outwards out of the crust and covers the skies across the entire planet in thick ash clouds that stay, remain there for generations. Over a century of time, these clouds just wax and wane over the surface, completely blotting out uh, the rays of of the sun. And the entire land is plunged into darkness. I've got a question concerning the... uh, Are the spires in place yet? No, those don't come for thousands and thousands of years. Okay, okay. It's a great question. That comes with... That comes that that'll come in with the the end of this uh, Avum Secundum. Yes, Secundus? Uh, Avum Secundus is 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 capped with the finishing of those spires. We'll have to talk about that in a future episode, I think. Yes, that's its own whole thing. Um, but yes, um, so, oh, go ahead. So ash clouds that stay around for 
generations have just appeared thanks to the the volcanic eruptions and explosive vaporization. That's right. And this is why it's known as the Ash Curse. In that day and in that age, the Nameless One has permanently cursed the planet, not only with the loss of any magical power, but also any access to sunlight. Um, This actually turns out to be almost not a blessing, but a silver lining on these black clouds, because if they had not had the ash, there would be no one left. None would have survived. Because when the ash clears, finally, and the storms slowly die down, the planet, the entire world, is left as a barren wasteland. There is no green anywhere. The only people that have survived are because they have found a place to stay underground and away from the uh, torrential storms, the tsunamis, the hurricanes and, and, and tornadoes and uh, volcanoes that uh, are raging across the surface. And when they finally reemerge, the sun bakes the world in deadly rays. They are no longer protected by the arcanosphere. The world is devoid of magic. And something far worse than this has been, has been brewing in the background as well. Perhaps, depending on who you talk to, it might even be worse than the destruction of magic in the world. And that is what magic exactly is doing to the soul. Without magic, people become like animals. Uh, The main difference between a creature that is bestial in nature, that is, is, you know, an animal, and a sentient race is their ability to have complex emotions and and, and more than that to make their lives more than fight or flight, die or survive, which is why the, the manifest, these, these sentient races are colloquially known as the knowing, the idea of being able to know, being able to be aware of the world beyond um, yourself and beyond survival is what sort of colors the divide between the more complex races and the simplistic ones. So this happens. Um, the, the souls of people uh, no longer have access to the nine flow. They no longer have access to joy or knowledge, truth, justice. Um, they lose their ability to fight or, or their will to fight, uh, but they also lose their ability to find peace. Um, they no longer have compassion or creativity. It is simply, they become like animals. And this, this is the curse. That is the curse that if the Nameless One had their way, all of the knowing would live this way up into the, any moment on, on, on the timeline. And the, the beings of physicality would either not exist or remain purely physical beings? Exactly. Um, this was the way that they sought to get back the 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 purity of the spiritual realm is by taking away the soul of uh, those that are physical beings. But did the nameless one fail in a kind of fundamental way? Because in each individual sentient being, even though deprived of magic, there is still some magical essence as a part of them. Yes. In a yes, they uh, they did fail to an extent. They were successful for a long time because what magic remained in the soul slowly decayed because of the fact that created beings have the ability to possess magic. It acts as a sort of well or a cistern. 
when times are dry, times have little access to magical power, it slowly releases a small amount, enough to live off of for a long time. So people don't lose their humanity right away. People don't lose their ability to empathize or be creative right away. But over the decades, over the centuries, and on into Avum Secundus, it becomes like creatures with the knowledge and the intelligence to be capable of, of powerful things, but without the empathy or without the purpose or the peace or the drive to, to, to better themselves to limit that or curb those desires. They become exceedingly imbalanced creatures. Okay. So as the Ash Curse and Aiden Sucundus continues on, people are more and more bestial. Yes. Within the first uh, thousand years or so of, uh, of Avum Secundus, the majority of all of the knowing are little more than creatures that are smart enough to sharpen sticks and protect a small tribe. Even that much is only because it's easier to survive that way. Um, they yeah. lose all of their access to the intelligence that they had beforehand. And I should say at that point, people did have longer lives as a result of their um, immersion, complete immersion in magic, uh, the flows of lay energy as they passed across the, 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 the surface of the world. But uh, they lose all of that in that time. So you said that the Ash Curse was about 100 years, right? Uh, yeah, the Ash Curse itself proper was about 100 years or so. A little bit more. And the end of this ash curse proper is the end of the of the ash clouds and the torrential weather that's when the first clearing of the skies happens yes and that's that's when the age of the dark sun begins okay and the ash curse is like so the ash curse is kind of like a transitional period between the first age and even secundus. Yeah, this is one of those things that's kind of different about the way that we might think of AD versus BC or you know BCE versus CE is that we have a clear delineated moment that's agreed upon by culture as to like here's BC, here's AD. But for the cultures of of Halume, Sadar. of Sadar specifically, they think more in periods are, are there's, there's, there's periods proper and then there's transitional periods in between them. And transitional periods can, you know, um, one of, you know, some of them are very short, you know, maybe about a hundred years. Some of them are much longer. I don't think there's one that's longer than about a hundred years, but there's at least one that's, that's, that's much shorter. It's only about 30, but regardless, they, yes, they, they kind of represent, a great transition and that sweeping change isn't denoted by the birth or death of an, a single individual. It's by the changing of an entire era or the way that people are sort of reprogrammed to think about their own lives. Okay. So within the hundred or so years of the Ash Curse, when either everyone either died or, you know, the, all the Noahs either died or fled underground... What's what's going on in this underground space that was, you know, just created by these, you know, horrible explosions? Mm, yeah. Well, a couple of things. So at the time it was understood that humanity was the one of the only races. To properly talk about this, I'm going to bring in uh, two more. So there were also the Fae, which are basically the progenitors of the elves, and there's also the Dosumai, 
which are the progenitors of the half-sized races. Them being like gnomes, dwarves, halflings. Halflings, exactly. The fae were a result of the regents gifting a sort of a, a, a mirror reflection of reality to the materium. In their delight, before the ash curse, before all of these events went down, in their delight of seeing everything that had gone so well and they were so excited about what Owen was doing in creation that they gifted a, a, a place called the Alluvium to the Materium. And out of it, and all of those sort of hyper-saturated reflections, we get elves. Cre- the creatures of the Fae were capable of, as capable as, as people were of, of, of carrying and, and consorting with immense power, the elves were even more so to an order, like a degree of orders of powers. And their position, their place, the reason why they were created on behalf of the regents is to act as ambassadors or emissaries, guides to humanity, to lead them into ever greater knowledge and wisdom, to act as mediators on behalf of the gods themselves. The Dosumai were kind of not really known by... They, it's not that they weren't known by the regents, but they weren't the concern of the regents. They were a race created specifically, and nobody knows if it was exactly Owen or if it was perhaps a regent or one of the other major gods. Perhaps it was even the dragons. Um, some argue that it might even be the dragons that created them. But whatever their purpose was, they knew that they were made to be the guardians and tenders of the Erebor crystal. So they actually are a race of beings that uh, lived in the caverns and spaces nearest to the heart of the, the world itself. And some believe that if one were to find their way down there, they would find the remains of immense and in- incredible cities, dwarven holds, or what, what we would now think of as dwarven holds, that um, lace the heart of the world itself. Of course, there's no way to get down there, not really, because these days, if you were to try and do that, you'd just die. Yeah, and I mean... It- it makes a lot of sense, given you know the legendary magical resistance of the dwarves living so close to the crystal must have affected them in this way. Absolutely, but also, but also in the you know incredible luck of the halflings. Right. So all of those traits and the curiosity, the obsession that gnomes have with both astrology and astronomy, and with crystal, they have this obsession with. Um, the way of crystalline structures, dwarves and, and, and gnomes kind of approach crystal from from different from different points of view. Dwarves kind of more as batteries, gnomes kind of more uh, akin to electronics or circuitry. But in both situations, um, they have a strong affinity for that stuff as a result of their progenitor race, the dosmi. So the original question was basically, what's going on down there? The yeah. answer is, in short, a lot of survival tactics. Um, people living off lichens, um, small, small bands of humanity or dosumai that are sometimes working together, usually working against each other to take care of only their own. Even beasts can recognize when a pack is strengthened by by more numbers, but they also have extreme territorialism and you know not necessarily trusting uh, those who are outside of the pack. So this period of this ash curse was we see the first conflict like real conflict between races as well as inter-race this is where murder comes from yep for the first time people have need and they have need of things that other people have and the only way to get that is to take it from them by killing them and this is where we get the natural differences between people right because before everyone was kind of the same having the same access to the nine flow but now that that's gone 
Yeah, in a kind of interesting way, people didn't really have personalities the way that they they do afterwards. In the way that we think of personalities, people were equan. What is what is I don't know the best word for that, but like equanimity. They had equanimity in their personality, complete balance. They were not expressive of one ideal over another because the nine flow in its in its presence and in its balance in their lives created people who largely didn't necessarily yeah have their have a clear division or preference for one ideal or the other you know the the way we would see it is you know a person might have their their greatest need in life would be to be right or to know truth or to be creative but for the people of avum prima the golden hour the time before the ash curse they they didn't really see life that way they had complete balance but it also meant yeah they kind of lacked personalities yeah, so the nine flow wasn't really differentiated in the way it is in more modern eras of Siddhar. Exactly, and that creates all of the conflict. Some some people argue, some philosophers, others of just you know really intellectual spheres, that that's where conflict comes from. Is the idea that people have imbalances in their ideals? If everybody has the exact same ideals or the exact same lack of any specific one ideal pervading or, or, or being a majority, then there's never a need for conflict because everybody sees everything the same way all the time. Yeah. So we see the the humans, we see among them, you know, they've retreat underground. They have some dispute with the, what were the progenitor race called again? The Dosumai. The Dosumai. Yeah. Name and kind of a working title. I haven't necessarily landed on that as being for sure what I want to call them. But I need there was a there was a time where I just needed a name and that was what I came up with and I was like, all right, this looks good enough. Sounds pretty cool. But what what's going on with the elves or the Fae, given that they were so so much more connected and able to access magic? That's a great question, Carter. The short answer is they fared far, far worse than the others. And their ability to access emotion or to access um, these sort of these beatitudes, these benevolent soul experiences as a result of the nine flow uh, means that their lack of them becomes all the more desperate and dire. They are essentially the perfect model of addicts. And when they lose that access to the nine flow, they become absolutely desperate in their desire to reacquire it. And this is actually true for a lot of the races, but more so and most so for the elves. Com- now, combine that with the fact that they were in a, in, a, in a mentality or position of feeling that they had authority over humanity, a belief that they were made to guide humanity. And some of the first really broken thinking comes into play here. Some discover, the first time that this is really discovered, they discover that there is a way to actually pull magic from another person's body. It is, it is a deep, deep, powerful, incredibly difficult to achieve thing. But if one is oriented in the right way and does the, you know, kind of... Um, prepares themselves and modifies themselves to properly do this, it becomes this incredibly dark, incredibly powerful ability that they have access to. So the the elves, some of the elves, some of the darker ones, basically justify a draining of the souls of humanity and say, well, there's so many of them and they're so, so short-lived and don't we kind of deserve this anyways? Weren't we kind of 
you know, we need payment for our, for our guidance of them. If we're truly going to guide them, especially in these dark times, then, you know, perhaps this is the, you know, the blood offer that we need in order to, you know, so that, so that the balance can be kept and, you know, justification after justification. But this is the first example of vampirism, a person discovering that in the life force of another, they can draw the magic out of them. And this becomes a whole problem in the coming era. There is a thing known as the Shrouded Empire, and that is basically the elven lords that degenerate into vampires and liches, enslaving and feeding on humanity. And that act will define history for eons, for entire ages that are devoted to the enslavement of humanity and humanity seeking to be freed from, from, from their masters. So I think we can talk a little bit about the return of magic because while this is a dark, dark, dark time, magic does eventually come back and that signals the beginning of the Avum Tertius and the ending of Avum Secundus, right? Yeah. Yeah, so there is... I, I don't know. I kind of wonder if we shouldn't leave it as a cliffhanger. We're already at about an hour in. I think if we started yeah. anything else... So maybe we don't we don't want to give a little teaser. I think we'll, we'll give a little teaser. Let's do let's do a little teaser. What specifically were you th- were you thinking of talking about the spires or perhaps? Yeah, you know, uh, maybe we talk about. Well, how about how about we? I'll say this. I think next episode should be the return of magic. Yes, I think that's a great plan. For now, we'll say this: all is not lost because gnomes. Gnomes are pretty observant, and their obsession with crystal leads to some pretty interesting discoveries in a time when technology is all but completely absent from the world. They, uh, they discover a couple of things that have to do with crystal that usher in an entire new era. And working together with the angels, the houses of Legion, they find certain avenues that might prove fortunate or, or powerful enough to change the world. Oh, that gives, that gives rise to another question. Yeah, what's up? I think at this point we're kind of just in addendums. Well, we got the physical view, what's going on on Sadar, mm-hmm. but the regions must be flipping their fucking shit. What are they doing? That's a great question. This is something I haven't put a lot of thought to. I My approach to the regions has always been one of... Not alienation, but of distance. It's not necessarily of the mortals to figure out what the deities are doing, but that doesn't mean that we can't explore this somewhat. I think that surely, they... oh, go given ahead. that Own made this and did this, they know Own's desire is for it to be this way, and so surely they would attempt to ameliorate the situation. True. That's true. The thing is, is they are not successful. The return of magic is not at the hands of the regents. That much we know. I think anything else I have not planned for, but I would not be opposed to kind of talking ideas if you had anything in mind. We can always put a pin in it, too, if, uh, if, uh, if you don't. Uh, did, you, did you have something you were thinking of? I think it might be interesting to say, you know, that, they, that the regents tried many things, but, you know, like you were saying... They've realized that they cannot do the thing that is required to bridge the gap, to bring the spirit back to the physical. That is not in their power because they're purely spiritual beings and they don't have the pure creative force of their own. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's tricky because 
all of all of the power of the spirit lacks the ability to create in the same way that a person um, of the physical can create. In a lot of ways, being a material creature, a creature of like flesh and blood, is more in the image of own than uh, than even the created beings of the Ethereum. Um, sort of a Judeo-Christian thing going on there, but basically just saying that creativity or the ability to form works differently in the materium than it would in the Ethereum, yeah. Oh, okay. Ooh. All right, I know we're running long, but I realized something we totally didn't do. And I also have another thing about the, the Immaterium. Let's do yours first, and we'll All come right. back to mine. Just in, to say a little bit more about what they might be doing or how they might be feeling, as much as these kinds of region, you know, powerful beings feel, you know, in the way we do. Sure. I feel like the one who's most frustrated and, you know, willing, you see here, like really trying to fix things and really <laughs> in being frustrated by his failure is Autar because of his, his, you know, regency of will. Yeah, I would, I right. would definitely, I could definitely see some, some good stuff coming out of that. That's so Autar is the regent of will. One of the nine flows, uh, one of the nine forces is straight up just willpower and the way it manifests and I would be really interested to see what Autar gets up to. We maybe we should we should uh, kind of build out some of that stuff sometime. Yeah, and I mean this might explain why we see more so than any of the regions at least so far that I've seen. Autar seems to be the most involved. Yeah, they're definitely the way that this and that's kind of interesting in and of its own right, but um the way that the different regions are involved in the the world of Halume depends on perspectives and depends on basically how they choose to express themselves. Since Otar is the regent of will, his solutions for problems are almost always the most direct. And so as a result, he is the one who most directly usually just gets his his metaphorical fingers dirty in the world itself and and, and gets involved trying to enact or, or make things happen the way that he sees would be right. And it really does explain not only, you know, why he does that, but his justification for this thing, right? Of course, he is a personification of willpower and will, so it is this directness, but he sat on his fucking hands, or, you know, felt like he did, for the entirety of an Avum, unable to fix Mm -hmm. what he saw was, you know, incredibly... Must have come... It must have come close to driving him mad. I mean, I can't even imagine what it would be like to be the god of will and to be able to do nothing and just basically be hammering against an impervious wall for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years and not being able to change anything. Yeah, he's not a god of patience. <laughs> no, he is not. He is definitely not a god of patience. Okay, so here's the final thing I, 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 I wanted to throw in here, because we didn't talk about what the consequences of the Nameless One's actions were for the Nameless One, and why they're called that. That's true. So, Own is a pretty hands-off god most of most of the time they are he's very chill very not involved yeah very not involved well it that depends on kind of like how like your what what house of philosophy you come from but there is at least an argument to say that if he is active or if they are active in in the world it is not a very direct route they they don't do the otar thing but there is one thing that they did as a result of the nameless one's actions during this entire time the nameless one had a name and now that has been taken from them and this is more significant than it might first at first appear because magic works through names. It works through the the way that that things interact with other things is by like by by recognizing them and then 
connecting to them. And whether that's through a name or whether that's through a title or whether that's through interacting with the essence of the thing itself, in order to interact with something, to create that connection, oh, a name I really has... Like, I like the idea of calling it a, a naming of names. <laughs> the naming of names. Well, uh, how do you mean? That, that magic is the naming of names? Not, but like a fundamental part of what magic is or like oh, connecting yeah. things is the naming of names. Like and that's like a functional term. Yeah, no, I, I definitely would. Uh, I can see where you're coming from with that. I do like the sound of that too. But yeah, basically the nameless one, uh, their name was taken away. And as a result, nothing in creation can interact with them and they cannot interact with anything. They're basically cast out of creation. There is, I, 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 I hesitate to even use the word nothing because even nothing denotes that there is sort of a void or there is a space in which they occupy, but they don't even have that anymore. They no longer can interact with reality in the way that, um, in, in, they can no longer interact with Halume in the way that uh, all of the rest of creation can. They they're no like, longer can take part. They're like simultaneously existing and not existing. <laughs> Exactly. They, they, have a, they have an existenceless existence. They are an anomaly. They are an outcast in, in the most extreme, complete sense of the word. And so, yeah, Owen casts them out of creation, but the damage is done. The, the planet loses any access to magic. Um, the people become bestial. I mean, let's not say the planet. The entirety of everything that is physical <laughs> That's has right. been You're... disconnected from everything that is spiritual. Your focus is a little bit more macro scale than mine, which is good. I kind of, uh, I keep, I get so focused on Halime that I forget. Oh yeah, not just, uh, not just one planet, but the entirety of reality in, within the material plane loses all access to magic. Yeah, that's kind of a problem. <laughs> all right, but I think we'll just leave it off for there for now. Um, uh, probably episode two, we might be talking about the return of magic if we don't find something else is more important, but, uh, yeah. I think episode two, Return of Magic, and then depending on how we feel when we end that, episode three might be the nature of magic. That might not be a bad one to do. Um, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of, for all of our boisterous and and copious audience, um, I'm sure we'll have... Oh, I'm sure that there's, there's probably it'd be good to clear the air there and kind of explain what exactly is happening with magic and how it works. And, and the uh, nature of magic... But that episode's going to be separate from the Nine Flow, so those are different things. Right, right. Uh, don't worry, it will never get absurdly... We're not going to talk about midi-chlorians or any ridiculous oh. level sh- bullshit. I, that's, that's, that is... Um, if you're coming to this podcast for that, you might find it in some things, but uh, for the most part, I try to avoid that because I think it takes away some of the, 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 mystic, the mystical parts of the magic. This... This is a fantasy world. We're not going to try to explain everything using pseudoscience or science. <laughs> right, exactly. The events of the world, yeah, we can we can lay those out in some level of certain terms. Of course, you know, some things will always be shrouded in mystery. Unfortunately, there are things that I, I cannot let Carter know because if I were to tell him or if I were to tell you, dear listener... We, uh, I would have some problems in some of the D and D games that I run where they are discovering things about the world that they are not supposed to know, which would be unfortunate. I think that's it, though. Is there anything else? Yeah. I mean, I think I think with with our uh, copious amount of addendums, I think we covered it. Yeah, I'd say so. 
All right. Um, well, if, that, if that's it, then I think we'll just call it a quits for today. Uh, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Goodbye.